Hey there, e-commerce enthusiasts. Let me tell you about a game changer in shipping, ShipStation. It's the ultimate platform for simplifying your shipping process. With ShipStation, you can easily import, manage, and ship your orders in no time. It integrates seamlessly with your favorite e-commerce platforms and carriers, ensuring a smooth workflow. Gain valuable insights with their powerful analytics and reporting tools. Say goodbye to shipping headaches. Visit milwaukeemafia.com slash ship and level up your shipping game today. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And Gavin, we're back with another episode. Yes. And what do you got for us today? Well, so if you can remember back to last time, I said this was kind of a two-parter. Correct. And so this is the second part. Okay. Cool. And, and so last time, uh, give you the quick rundown of in like 10 seconds, we had a dancer who might have been doing other things besides dancing uh, in her free time, who dances all throughout the Midwest, and then after a night of drinking, she gets killed. In Peoria. In Peoria. Yep. Very important point right there. Peoria. Yes. In Peoria, Illinois. Okay, so where do we pick this up then? We're going to pick it up in Milwaukee. In Milwaukee already, wow. We're, we're back to Milwaukee. So, okay. in Milwaukee, like many other big cities, throughout the first half of the 1900s, there were jazz clubs all over the place. place. Yeah, all kinds of great jazz bands coming through. And in the 1950s, one of those jazz band, or jazz clubs is the Brass Rail, which is one of the places that our person last time, Christina Caligaro, was dancing at for a while. And was that the one she got fired from? No. She got fired from, I think it's the Combo Club? Whatever. It doesn't okay. matter. yeah. Anyway, so the Brass Rail, which is run by Izzy Pograb. And Izzy, depending on who you ask, is like 300 pounds, 500 pounds. I've, I've seen many different claims about how large this man is. Uh, and then when you see photos of him, he's definitely a bigger guy. But I think they had a different <laughs> idea, idea of what, <laughs> like in the fifties than today. Because, like, would you say he's like what, maybe three hundred pounds, or or not even like looking at him, he's not even three hundred pounds. No, he could be. He could be three hundred pounds. I mean, he's a heavy dude. But uh, like, I think like when you saw an overweight person in the fifties, it was it was different than today. <laughs> Where you're like, whoa, that person's huge, and now it's like, yeah, that's a lot of people look like that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so he he runs this uh, this club. Uh, his brother kind of runs it too. I don't know how much his brother does, but like his name is on like some of the paperwork. And all these great jazz bands come through, but then we reach a point later on in the fifties where, uh, and I think I've said this on previous episodes, they they kind of figure out that you can make more money. If the girls are naked. If the girls are naked and you sort of phase out the jazz and sort of phase in the girls. Because bands cost a lot of money. You got to pay them every night. And if they're paying for hours on end, you got to pay them a lot more. And if they're national bands, you're paying them even more still. The girls, you don't got to pay them much of anything. I mean, you pay them an hourly wage and you're mm -hmm. good. And guys will show up for that. You know, a guy might show up for a jazz band. But he'll also show up for a naked girl. <laughs> so uh, if you can get just as many people to show up and drink without having to pay for the entertainment, uh, it's a better business move. So a lot of them would do that. And they, 
And they did it in stages where first the girls would dance with the band. And then eventually you'd have fewer national acts. You'd have more house bands, which are cheaper. And then ultimately a lot of these places got rid of the bands almost completely because you don't need a band. I mean, I don't know how familiar people are with uh, with strip clubs these days, but not a lot of them have house bands. I'm curious, and you probably don't know the answer to this, but mm-hmm. like when... Because I, when I think of a jazz club, yeah. I think of kind of a high-end type place. If sure. you're going to go see a live jazz band, it's going to be a nice kind of, maybe they have re- really fancy food, stuff like that. So is that kind of how, because, okay, I, I'm... Maybe I'm, maybe not, but, but continue. Is, is that how sort of strip clubs started? They were kind of a high-end, high-scale thing, and then over the years, because I don't think of strip clubs as being very high-scale high-end these days they're kind of like i would think of more like a dive bar with naked girls in it that's a really good question Uh, i actually you know and i don't know um i i think maybe less so in places like milwaukee because like not all the jazz clubs were nice i mean I, i don't know the polite way of putting this but a lot of the jazz clubs um because a lot of the bigger jazz artists happen to be black they would come through some questionable neighborhoods in town. So not all the clubs were that nice. And even the Brass Rail, like, not that it wasn't nice, but it was in a part of downtown that they eventually tore down. So it wasn't like the nice part of downtown either. And actually, that does make a lot of sense because I would, I kind of would think about it like probably in the 50s, like you said. They were African-American musicians, yeah. so people probably weren't as receptive to that music as, right. you know, they they are today. Not to say that jazz isn't huge today, but I just kind of put it on a pedestal as being kind of a fancy-dancy type music. But I bet you you're right. That didn't exist back then because it just wasn't what it was. What and, it is, and today. I yeah, and I don't know that for sure. I mean, jazz, but jazz I think was that's... definitely very popular, but I don't know how it played Played out yeah okay i'm just curious continue okay so the brass rail is at 608 north third street which uh you know if you don't know milwaukee that won't mean anything to you but again like i say it's kind of like the downtown area and they're doing pretty good they're bringing in clientele because the dancers aren't costing very much but uh we got some trouble going on we got some trouble going on at the club. Now, there's rumors that Izzy was receiving stolen whiskey and owed a lot of money on it. Now, I don't know if this is true. They never were able to, they couldn't prove it, but that was a rumor that the mob didn't like him because he wasn't paying off his debts on stolen whiskey. And I don't think that he had strong mob connections. There's rumors, you know, that he did because he's in the downtown nightclub scene. But he also seems to be pretty friendly with the police, and he had a reputation, before he opened the jazz club, he owned a pawn shop, and he had a reputation of having a very clean pawn shop, which traditionally they don't have good (laughs) reputations. So, uh, I don't know. I think he might have actually been a a fairly decent guy. Somebody could tell me otherwise, and I mean, I'd believe you, but I haven't seen anything that really shows him connected to a lot of shady things. Well, anyway, so one night... He's closing down the club. This is in January 1960. So we're into the 60s now in our timeline. Woo! Yep. January 1960. And he uh, 
he's closing down. He's got a couple guys with him. Is you know they close down the the club with him. His MC and his bartenders, and they walk over to the Belmont Hotel, which had an all night coffee shop. It was a pretty popular place for like night people to hang out. Um, you know, like for for you and me, like that's like the equivalent of us going to Perkins or something. Yeah. But in Milwaukee, the the nightclub people after close would go to the Belmont oh, Hotel okay. and sit in the coffee shop. So it was a mixture of people in there. There were there were high class people, and then there were some really low class people. It was a very very mixed crowd in that coffee shop. It was definitely known as a gangster hangout, a mobster hangout. So it had that going for it. As he's leaving the coffee shop, two guys push him into the back of a car and drive off. Hmm. Bummer for him. Huh? Bummer for him. And he's found the next day dead. dead. <laughs> he's, as what happens on this podcast. <laughs> as what happens, yeah. He is found in Mequon, which at this time really wasn't much of anything. Mequon was a very rural farming community at this point. And he was out on a country road, and they apparently like pushed him or his body or whatever um, off of the side of a a road into the, a creek that that ran underneath the road. And he was found there. And, you know, they searched him. They tried to get some clues. They couldn't really get any clues off of him. And it was kind of a mystery. So they went and started investigating, and that's like where the hijack liquor story comes in about how he wasn't paying his, his bills on that, but nobody could really say. Um, there was rumors that he knew about certain past crimes, um, and it might have been revenge for that, but that never really went anywhere. And then, of course, there comes up the connection with the woman who was dancing in his club because she had been killed, even though it was in Peoria, she had been killed just less than a month earlier. Mm -hmm. So less than a month after she leaves Milwaukee to go dance in Peoria and then gets killed, the place that she was dancing at in Milwaukee, the owner is killed. Coincidence or not? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know, man. So if I can speculate here, yeah. I, I'm going to speculate on which direction I think this is going. This does Do sound like a coincidence because I don't really know how the the two could be connected. Oh. And I, it sounds like I'm dead wrong, huh? No, you're probably right. <laughs> you're probably right. But it doesn't stop them from doing a very heavy investigation. Like the, the Peoria Police Department's working hard. The Milwaukee Police Department's working the Mequon Police Department is working hard. Um, and what was actually kind of fun, uh, I, mean, I don't know if I should say fun, that's not maybe not the right word, but what was actually interesting was that when I did a record request from the Mequon Police Department and got the, the investigation report and, and the photos, and some of those photos are uh, not pretty, <laughs> I will tell you that. But anyway, I get that, and the, the guy who I got them from and I'm probably misremembering this, but I think he was the son of the chief of the Mequon Police Department. When this happened? The, when this happened. Oh, really? I could be wrong on that, but he was he was the son of somebody on the police, police force. Really? So so he he was familiar, even though this was before his time, he was familiar with it because his father had also been a Mequon police officer. So that was kind of neat. But yeah, so they they did a really good job, but the the thing was is, is they ran into a lot of difficulties because of jurisdictional issues. When the body is found in Mequon, that makes it a Mequon case. Right. The Mequon Police Department, no disrespect to them, is a small rural department. 
Mm-hmm. They don't have the money. They don't have the manpower. They're not really meant to be investigating cases like this. So they get help from the Milwaukee Police Department, but the Milwaukee Police Department is only so invested because it's not really their case. It's, yeah. You know, so if they're like, hey, can you run this for us? They'll be like, yeah, sure. But they're not eager to do a lot of legwork on it because it's not their the case. case. Right. Yeah. So um, I think that really kind of hampered the investigation because they didn't end up doing as much questioning as I think would normally be done because at least what's left in the record, I don't know how, maybe the record's not complete, but at least from what I have, like, they could have questioned so many more people and they just didn't. Yeah, and you would think, so I would envision this happening where, so like, if this had happened, if the body had been discovered in Milwaukee, these, the Milwaukee Police Department would know all these people to go talk to that right. could possibly be associated with it and stuff like that. Right. But then I, I imagine in this situation, the Mequon police calls the Milwaukee police, and like you said, they're not really vested in it. They're like, well, you could talk to these two people, and then that's kind of all they give them. Whereas, right. you know, so they don't probably have nearly as much to go on just because they're not the Milwaukee Police Department. They don't know all the people associated with this, right? you know, world, I right. guess. Which is not to say, like, they didn't work together. I'm not, like, I'm not trying to imply that they didn't get along or anything. Just that wasn't the role. Even though he was abducted in Milwaukee, it it wasn't their case. And a detective isn't going to stop investigating his own case to go do someone else's work. And generally, like I would just say the normal psychology of a person is, is that they're only going to give you as much as as you, they're only going to give you enough until you're satisfied so they can get rid of you. Then, yeah. And they're not going to go the extra mile to right. give you everything they could possibly dig up for you. Right. And I, and it made me wonder, like, if this is a tactic, I don't know how conscience conscious, <laughs> I don't know. How, I don't know how aware that they are about like how this works, the criminals, because that had been like a tradition of you abduct somebody and then you dump them out in the country somewhere. And I don't know if that was just, you know, there's nobody around, so it's convenient for dumping yeah. the body. But it's also convenient because if you're dumping out in a rural area, you've got a small police department who then gets assigned the case and isn't going to have whatever. The resources. That, the resources, that, yeah. 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 And so I don't know that that was ever like something they thought about, like that was intentional. But it definitely happened. I mean, there was previous cases where people would be dumped in rural Waukesha County. Now, had they been dumped in the city of Waukesha, they'd be they'd be spending thousands and thousands of dollars, hours upon end. But rural Waukesha, with there's probably like a day sheriff and a night sheriff. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's I don't know how much that that's like their top priority. I mean, obviously it's a priority because it's a murder. But you but, know, but they've got other stuff they're dealing with. Right. Exactly. And they're only two people. So yeah. So anyway, that's kind of a tangent, but I like I I do wonder like how much further this investigation could have gotten if it wasn't for where it, it had happened. Right. Yeah, and I can totally see that. And as far as the criminal thing goes, I'm, I I venture on the side of people just aren't that clever. I mean, right? They're 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 dumping them in the country because. You know, it's dark and it's a lot easier to dump a body right. out in the middle of nowhere than it is in the middle of a city. No, I do think that's the prime the motivation. Yeah. yeah, but so, but I do wonder if it's something they think about. But, but anyway, yeah. So, but so it's like it's interesting because, like, I've seen police reports on murder investigations over the years, and 
they get bigger. As time goes on, they get bigger. And then, like, the big one that I have is, like, 1954 is, like, my biggest. And then we got the Peoria case. And the Peoria case, it's still pretty big. It's a little smaller, but it's still pretty big. And then we get, just a couple months later, we get this one. And it's not that big. And, like, that's weird to me because I feel like there is a progression in how much more paperwork you generate as time goes on. Right. Because you've got more officers. You've got more techniques you can use. You've got more stuff you can do. So you're going to, for an unsolved case, you're going to have Collect more. more data, yeah. basically. And and I see it like in just the page count, how much it dropped off for mm-hmm. this one. And that's, maybe I'm thinking too much about it, but it, like, it stands out to me. Well, and I'm sure you've seen like these rural Waukesha article or reports before, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah. how, how do they stack up? Are they tiny or... Or were those yeah. just like way, way back, the ones th- that you got in rural Waukesha, like from the te- 1910s or 20s or something? Where They're not that far back, back, but they're thinner. They're thinner than like compared to Milwaukee proper, but they do okay. The, the Waukesha sheriffs did a pretty good job when they got cases. I mean, so yeah, after just like it was like the day sheriff, the night sheriff. No, but I mean, they did. They did do a good job. But again, a lot of what they're limited to is. They can call people in for questioning, and they can kind of go around the area and ask people, did you see anything? Mm-hmm. And that's about all they can do. It's not like they're going to go and stop in every bar and nightclub in Milwaukee and be like, tell me about this guy, which is what you would do if you were a Milwaukee like a cop. cop. Yeah. So, yeah. Th- so, there is some limitation there. But they, I give I give Waukesha Sheriff credit. Well, I give the Mequon police credit, too. I mean, they did the same thing. They asked everybody... Within like a half mile, did you see a weird car drive by? You know, they did what they could, but but they're, just but they're so limited. Like, well, and and also if your body's dumped in in your town, I mean that's a tough thing to even start with how to investigate. But I, right. I assume they know knew that he was from Milwaukee, so they had well, had yeah. that least right going for. Him. I don't remember if he still had his ID on him or not, so I'm not sure about that but it wasn't like there was any effort to disguise him or anything yeah yeah i don't know i don't remember where i can really go with this um but it ties in to that other one uh sort of loosely and then there's another case in iowa which we will not be talking about on this podcast that ties into both of them Um, and they ended up all kind of like sharing police files like milwaukee sending records to peoria peoria sending it to iowa iowa sending it to milwaukee they're all going back and forth which is really neat for me because I've got the Peoria file and the Milwaukee file. So on top of just seeing the police record, I have some of the correspondence between them. And then Iowa, I don't know if I've said that on here before. I feel like I have, but either way, Iowa uh, won't give me anything. Mm, yeah. They, they won't. And I've I've tried a couple times and they've basically reached the point where they're like, you want something, you're going to have to sue us. And I'm just, I'm not that motivated. <laughs> Yeah, I I know we did talk about this before, and I'm going to guess it was on the Patreon episode when we did kind of the preview of this book. Yeah, it probably was. But yeah, so, but, but like it is funny because there was the correspondence between them. So Iowa won't give me anything, but then I still got copies of the ballistic reports and things like that because they send them over to Milwaukee, and Milwaukee 
or, you know, or Mequon, whatever. And they don't care. They're mm-hmm. like, like, here's the file. <laughs> so, so I've got pieces of the Iowa stuff they don't want me to see anyway. That's funny. Yeah. But, well, that's just the way they are. And I will tell you, um, at least the parts that I have, it's it's nothing that would screw up their investigation. And I'm curious, too, if the reason why they won't give it to you is because, like, would it be different if you were an author from Iowa trying to write a book? I don't think so. Uh, you just think that that's their policies and it's they- It's just the way – so – the open records laws, there's like the federal open records laws, and then each state has their own version. And Wisconsin, and- to its credit, has a very good open records law. And Iowa does not. Okay, so you've actually looked into the open records law, and you yeah. can see, okay, I can see why they're not giving this to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're different. Like so, and, and Illinois is somewhere in between. Like, Illinois is... Open records law is okay. They're allowed to deny things, but they have a built-in appeals process. So if they deny something and you think it's dumb, you can appeal. And then somebody looks at it. I mean, one time I had it appealed up to somebody who worked in the state attorney general's office. And the guy called me and he looked at it. He's like, I have no idea why Why they're not giving this to you. So he sent a memo back to them and he's like, let him have it. Like, there's no reason that he, <laughs> there's nothing in here. But they just instinctually decided they were going to try to withhold it because that was, you know, that was what they were used to doing. And Iowa doesn't have that. Iowa doesn't have the built-in appeals process. It doesn't have like a time limit when things become public. Whoever wrote their laws, I don't, kn- I don't think they did it intentionally to try to make it harder. But I don't feel like they thought it through to like. Like maybe after a hundred years, this isn't a hundred years, obviously, but like that's not even in there. Like after a hundred years, you know, maybe we can let this out. No, it's not in there. Like it's basically forever secret and that's not really good. So now you were saying, so we have this person that's dumped in Mequon, yeah. the bar owner. Yes. Then we have the girl in Peoria and then there's another person in Iowa yes. and they're all connected in some way. Yes. Do any of the, in all of the cases are unsolved? Yes. So there, there's just a clear connection. We don't even know if the same person killed them or is that based on the evidence, is it pretty? We as- don't know. And I think based on what I've seen, they're all killed by three different people. I don't, I mean, not to give away, you know, sorry, sorry to ruin the book, <laughs> but um, I don't think that the same person killed all three, but there were like witnesses who saw people in these three different locations where they shouldn't be one guy is in town buying a gun hours before one of the killings and he is from the other one one guy is from iowa but he's in peoria buying a gun hours before the murder Hmm. there's no reason for him to be in peoria like so there's there's all these like links between them but yeah but when they ran like the ballistics like the guns that they confiscated didn't match, like guns owned by the dead people didn't match the bullets in the other dead people. So I don't know if this is making so, sense so on the it, other end, but like, so if it if it were if it were to be the same guy that killed all three of them or girl, I should say, yeah, to be, be. politically correct, highly um, unlikely, but yes, that's but, true. But if it were. They would have used a different gun in each murder. Is basically essentially what you're saying. Well, what? Yeah, I'm either saying it was. Well, okay. Either way, it's three different guns. Okay. So it's either one person 
or you know Three two people or whatever right. using a different gun each time or what they thought was possible was like the guy who gets killed in Iowa they thought that he might have been the killer in the two other cases he came up as a suspect in the two other cases but they took his guns not the one that killed him but the ones that he owned and ran the ballistics test and it didn't match up with the bullets from the Milwaukee and Peoria case so if he was the killer he got rid of his gun before he got killed, even though he ends up getting killed a couple months after Pogrom. I mean, this is all, these these three connected murders are all in under a year, so. So, and, and do you, and don't give this away if, there's, if this is going too much into what the book is going to cover. I, but I don't think it's going to really much, but there's so much stuff in the book that, like, we're not going to really talk about but here. But do you, is it, is it safe to assume that they were all killed for uh one like one connected reason or is it just probably that they were all three of them were killed they were all connected in some way but it could just be three random killings that these people just happen to be connected i yeah, think do, i think you, it's three random killings and i'll i'll say that I'll, I'll say that bluntly and i don't honestly i don't think that takes away from the book because like with the book the point of the story in the book is that I want to show how all, not all, correct myself, not all, how many of like the places in Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Upper Michigan that had prostitution, they were all connected in that a number of the women were, were jumping from place from to, to place. place. The guys were driving from place to place, bringing them there. So a lot of these people who knew each other, Chris Calagaro, the woman who died in last episode, I mean, she knew people everywhere. She knew club owners throughout central Illinois, Wisconsin. I mean, she knew a number of people, many of whom had very questionable connections. You know, not surprising if you're running a brothel. It's just there is this huge network that that's the part that interests me is like the network of all these interconnected things. The murder is kind of like the selling point. Like, yeah, hey, there's more than just women here. There's also people getting killed. But I find the network to be the interesting part to, to, to show, like, this was just a whole connected world out there mm -hmm. of all these different mafia gangs and other guys who weren't mafia or gangs, but were just shady characters. Okay. And do you know the the whole rumor of him being killed, the bar, bar guy being killed because of the whiskey? Mm -hmm. Do you think that was, is there any legs to that? Or do you... First Possibly. of all, have you found any sort of evidence to suggest he was working with the mafia to get whiskey? I couldn't find anything conclusive. So, because there was mob suspicion, there's also an FBI investigation going on. Not into the murder specifically because they don't care about that, but they're, you know, kind of curious about what's going on around there. So, they do end up questioning a number of people who are who know him who had worked with him and you know they do look into like the hijacked whiskey situation and i don't know like they don't come up with anything conclusive um they do have some mob guys where they try to like they take like paint flakes off their cars to see if they can match the paint flakes to <laughs> the paint found like in the bottom of the creek where his body was things like that I mean, this is really rudimentary mm. science here, like with, with paint and carpet analysis. Like, this is, 
they didn't even have that yet, but they were kind of trying to trying do, it. Do, trying to do something. Yeah. And this is kind of like the running theme because like the uh, John DeTropany, who was killed about five years before this. I mean, we talk about that on here. And that was another rumor with him is that he was involved in hijacked whiskey and, you know, maybe not paying people or he was trying to sell it to people and getting in trouble. So, like, it's a running theme, this hijacked whiskey story, but they very rarely seem to ever track any down. Uh, yeah, and I wonder if that's if they, in this era, if they had an unsolved, mur- unsolved murder and they were connected to that world. Mm-hmm. They just said, oh, it must have been, an, a, you know, a whiskey thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, I don't know. It's really weird. And it's like, I mean, they found a little bit here and there, so, like, it happened, but it I don't see anything where it's like happening on a large scale. scale. Yeah, but maybe a small scale is enough to get the mafia upset with you. To, to yeah, the, you know, you never know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what it takes to get killed by the mafia. I don't know. So I don't. I also don't want to ever find out. So sure, <laughs> but there is. There's one. I, if you have questions, keep going. But otherwise, there's one follow up. No, so, go ahead. Okay, so the one follow up, and again, I'm going to be totally honest and upfront with you. I think this is a coincidence, but the interesting thing is, is that after he was killed, his club was purchased by members of the Balistrieri family. Okay, yeah, and you you did say that. Yeah, it's at some other point in time. Yeah, it had, it had to have been on the pod, on the Patreon, but but yeah, like so that did not help them get rid of the suspicions Suspicion, yeah because then after that the fbi started looking heavily into the sale and how this happened and made sure it was a legitimate sale it was it was everything was good but it was strange that you know oh this guy's dead now we're gonna buy his club but maybe it's not that strange because i mean they're running nightclubs and there's an open spot so yeah and and if i had to if they had killed somebody just to acquire their bar, mm-hmm. it, it would be my thought that you, we would find other instances of them doing the well, exact same thing. I don't think thing. they they killed him just to get the bar. I don't think that's like the the argument. But they they kill him because of the whiskey, and then they're like, "Well, yeah, and you know, he's dead." Right. But I mean, that's there's easier ways to get someone's business than killing. Yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty pretty loose. It, it connection is. It's too. definitely a loose connection, but it's. You know, it's definitely one of those things they looked into because th- there's so many coincidences, and there always are in these mob things. And I know that this like shoots me in the foot. Like this, this like makes the podcast less interesting or the books less interesting to say. Oh yeah, it's all just coincidence. Most of this doesn't yeah, amount yeah, to anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah uh, I mean, but it is like that's the case. Like not that the not the mob isn't out there committing crimes and doing this and that because they totally are, but. There's so much rumor out there that never yeah. adds up to anything. Remember that people love to. You're listening to this podcast because you love the mafia, yeah, more than likely. So there, people talk and they start. They try to dream up things that the mafia did that they may or may not have done. With you know, yeah, there's so, definitely a lot of things that are exaggerated, over dramatized, over dramatized. Yeah, uh, sometimes made up completely, but usually there's at least a tiny bit, a bit of. of- yeah. There's something to suggest it's possible, but there's really no evidence to show that it ever yeah. actually happened. Which is, so. again, why I'm a terrible, terrible person to be writing this, because I need the facts. 
Yeah, and, and other people who write mafia stories are not as picky as I am, and they'll be like, "Oh, look at this coincidence," and I'm just like, "Show me the proof." <laughs> but then again, at the same time, Gavin, you also have to realize that there are probably a lot of people out there that really appreciate the fact that you are that thorough and that I you tell a story as as the evidence shows it, and not I know. as much as what the rumors show. Right. And I know, and I appreciate the people who appreciate that. But, but yeah, just saying like your best mafia books out there, make a few leaps here and there. (laughs) So, all right. Well, is that wrap this one up? I guess so. Cause like, yeah, there's, I could go off into like little details, but we we don't care about the details, you know? And since we're kind of at the end of this story, which is, tied to your book why don't you just kind of give a breakdown when does this book come out i believe it's the spring or is it the fall i, I or, we don't know that oh this book is not doesn't have an official date yet no so oh. for for people listening right now we're recording this at the end of august 2022 um my deadline is the end of september 2022 so i've got about a month left and i don't know we don't have a release date set but my deadline for writing it is like at the end. I am at that point. that point. So we'll see. If if they get it and the first round of edits goes really smooth, it might be out in the spring already. Okay. It's really all depends. If they come back and they're like, ooh, this is pretty bad, <laughs> then it might be out it might be out a year from now. So we don't have a set date until we see, see where things are at. Because gotcha. they have, they haven't seen any of this yet, you know. They they gave me the contract and they let me loose, so they have no idea what it looks like right now. So probably though in twenty twenty three, most likely, yes, at yeah, some so, point. If it's not out in twenty twenty three, something went very wrong. wrong. Yeah, <laughs> maybe even it won't come out then. But yeah. I'm pretty sure. That, actually, didn't you say they have to put it out? Well, some... I mean, they don't have to, to but. but- but there's a contract, and that's their end of the contract. So, cool. All right. so uh, as long as I keep on my end, they should keep up theirs. All right, then we'll wrap this episode up. We'll be back, as always, we'll be back in a week with a Patreon episode. So if you are not yet a member of our Patreon, please go to MilwaukeeMafia.com, click on the Patreon link, and subscribe. Awesome content there. Yeah, it's fun. We just did a, a Dungeons and Dragons, Dragons episode. episode. Yes. So, yeah, if you want to see how the heck does that die in the Milwaukee <laughs> Mafia, uh, you have to check that out. And otherwise, we'll be back in two weeks. Do you want to give a sneak preview of anything going on in the next episode, Gavin? Or do you? Just... I, you know, I actually don't even know what the next episode is. So, so no. <laughs> so, no. Um, Obviously, we're up to 1960 now, so probably something that happened in 1960, but I have to check my timeline and see what we have. Okay. Well, a surprise for you then. So we'll be back in two weeks with that episode. Make sure to tune in, and thanks again for the continued support. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia Podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.